Thank you. And uh, it's my privilege to be here again. I think um, this uh, outline for this conference has been fantastic. Uh, I think it's a very, very good conference, very practical, and I hope I'm going to add some of that to, uh, for you today. Um, as Dr. Gavin said yesterday, uh, you don't need to be afraid of your nephrologist. Hopefully I'm going to bring you through some stuff here and, and won't uh, blow your minds. I'm not going to go into a lot of rat kidney type of things. But uh, as I was preparing for this talk, I thought of something pretty interesting. I've, I've transitioned now into an administrative role, but maintain a clinical practice, which I've been doing for 27 years. 27 years ago, when I sat down with patients and talked to them about diabetic kidney disease, my basic goal and my take home was, we just need to control your blood pressure. We didn't really even think a lot about blood sugars back then, but if I can control your blood pressure, and it didn't really matter to me how I did that, just as long as we did it, I thought we had some semblance of a chance of slowing the progression of chronic kidney disease. Well, I'm glad to say at this day and age, we were wrong. It matters not only what you do, but how you do it, certain medications. You've heard a lot about the Credence study uh, over this weekend, and I think that that has the potential to be a game changer. So I think it's very important to use the evidence-based medicine that we have. And what, one of the first things I want to talk about is um, how we can do that with some of our patients when we have adverse effects from some of the medications. So I have no disclosures. Uh, what I'm going to try to do today is I want to outline the association between cardiometabolic uh, risks and cardiovascular disease and hyperkalemia. And I also want to discuss some of the benefits about RAS inhibitors. Again, my favorite drug in the world are the RAS inhibitors. I think they're absolutely um, fantastic, and I think that they have helped us slow the progression of chronic kidney disease. I also want to look at some of the uh, uh, efficiencies and uh, safety data for different potassium-binding medications. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some new agents that are out there that may help us control this adverse effect from some of our medications. So I'm going to do this as a case-based presentation. I'm going to go over a typical case that you see in the office every day, and then I'm going to uh, pepper it with a lot of different things, and then we'll come back to the case at the end. So this is a 54-year-old male who presents with known type 2 diabetes, elevated A1C. Uh, he has definite retinopathy, coronary artery disease, uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and an EF of 30%. Typical patient, we see them every day. Blood pressure is not well controlled, 168 over 84, pulse is 76, and there's a list of his medications. He is on eplerinone, which is a potassium-sparing diuretic, and he's on irbesartan, which is an ARB, um, as well as furosemide and some other medications. His creatinine is 1.2, but his potassium is 6.4, and that would probably raise everybody's uh, blood pressure a little bit seeing that. His urine protein is about 1,245 milligrams per 24 hours. So... I use this because this is the oft-maligned banana. Um, we think that just stopping bananas is going to fix this problem. So what would a lot of people do? They'd say, well, stop the bananas, stop the empagliflozin, stop the irbesartan, stop the aplerinone. Well, let's stop the badness. We know that some of these agents are there for benefits for many of the comorbidities that this patient has. So let's, let's take a look at that, and let's get the banana off of our uh, screen for a little while. So the madness ensued, all the case-centric medications were discontinued. Repeat potassium was better, 5.2, still hyperkalemic. But blood pressure, which wasn't good to begin with, is even worse. Um, he gets admitted now for an exacerbation of CHF. He then goes to subacute rehab for 14 days. And then he goes home, and after that, he gets readmitted 
uh, right after his discharge. And one of my, one of my big areas of, uh, of study right now is on transitions of care, and you heard some of that in diabetes yesterday. Uh, very important to me. Now you've got a urine protein that went from about 1,200 up to 4,400 milligrams, and his hemoglobin A1C hasn't really changed. So I would argue, have we done anything really good for this patient other than lower his potassium? So let's first of all define the problem. Hyperkalemia is an elevated potassium, usually greater than 5.0, and it may be caused by different things. Here's where the kidney comes in a little bit. It's primarily because of a reduced uh, or reduction in the renal excretion of potassium. But there could also be those shifts where you get intracellular and extracellular shifts. And we see that a lot, especially in acidosis, things like that. But primarily, it's a decreased renal excretion. So when we use drugs that inhibit the RAS system or the renin-angiotensin system in patients with CKD or other chronic conditions, we further increase this potassium and uh, we reduce the reduction of it. So therefore, we put that patient at risk for worsening hyperkalemia. Okay, how prevalent is this? Well, about 3.7 million patients in the uh, United States back in 2014, it's a little higher now, um, shows that uh, that's, that's the prevalence of this. And that's increasing. And you can all answer that question, why? We're using more medicines that are known to effectively raise potassium. And that's been a good thing. So in patients with CKD and or heart failure, the annual prevalence was actually 6.35%. And about half of all patients who have known hyperkalemia have either CKD and or heart failure. Again, this is a patient that's walking into your office every single day. This is a little bit of a busy slide, but what I want to call, uh, call your attention to is the yellow and the blue, which is stage three and stage four chronic kidney disease. And if you look at payers, Medicare versus um, commercial payers, in that range, you have a fairly high incidence of hyperkalemia. So that's what I wanted to point out here. And of note, if you look on the far left side, with hyperkalemia down in stage one, it's very rare. And it's actually higher of people who don't have hyperkalemia. But certainly as you transgress up the CKD scale, hyperkalemia becomes much more prevalent. So what are the economics of this? Again, we all live in a very economic time. Just a quick show of hands. How many people here are involved in alternative payment models, shared savings programs, uh, all those things? If it hasn't gotten to you yet, it's going to. It's a very slow-moving train. We've been very involved with that. Dr. Levine knows as well as I do. In New Jersey, the landscape up there is a lot. So pay and accountability is becoming much more important. So when you look at hyperkalemia, the per, per patient per month cost is 15 times higher to take care of that patient than it is if they didn't have hyperkalemia. And if you look across the uh, spectrum, it can range five, $6,000 more than what the total Medicare patient is. It's always been said that chronic kidney disease makes up a small portion of the Medicare um, actual uh, panel, but we use up a lot of the resources. And that is true. Also, hospitalization rates are much higher in patients with CKD and hyperkalemia than those without hyperkalemia. So again, accountability, costs, you're going to get dinged for readmissions, your metrics aren't going to be as good. Mortality rate is more than double in Medicare patients who have CKD and hyperkalemia. Uh, 24, almost a quarter of our patients have a higher mortality rate. And why is that? Well, we have very few treatment options up until now, and we really have no specific guidelines on how to treat that, and you'll probably see that when we do the, the questions again at the end. It probably ranges all over the place how we uh, deal with that.
So just a graphic to show you uh, the difference. So all patients with hyperkalemia had uh, almost 70,000 ER visits, and out of that, about 40,000 got admitted. And if you look at hospitalizations across the board that had a primary diagnosis of hyperkalemia, you could see it's very high. Now that little gray bar on the end, I don't know if I have the, well, you can see the little gray bar on the sides. That's people who then go to a, trans, a, a place other than home. They go to either uh, subacute rehabs and, again, increase the costs. So you could see the healthcare crisis cost just from hyperkalemia. Don't really want you to look at this. Just notice the U-shaped curve for everything. So it's actually both extremes. Patients with low potassiums on the left side, according to high potassiums, there's the extremes there. Certainly hyperkalemia is a lot more when it comes to mortality. But if you look at this across the board for CHF, chronic kidney disease, um, you know, all those other things, the mortality is much higher when it goes into potassium. And it's actually a risk factor. When your patient gets admitted to the, to the ICU and they have hyperkalemia, their mortality risk is going to go up a lot higher. Okay, so let's talk a little bit, let's get into the bones and talk a little bit about pathophysiology. So you can have hyperkalemia from a number of reasons. The one in the red, of course, is the most common, and it's decreased excretion of potassium. It could also come in from excessive risk of or intake of potassium, which is your banana. Um, but uh, we don't see that a lot. There are a lot of, you have to remember, salt substitutes a lot of times are, are potassium-based. And there are certain fruits that are much higher, uh, star fruit in particular, very high in potassium. But you don't see excess intake as a major factor. But then again, we also have that shifting. So people who may have some acid-base disorders can have hyperkalemia as well. So let's talk about decreased excretion because that's our most common uh, thing that we're going to see. And it's primarily in patients who have some type of renal failure or chronic kidney disease. We certainly know that the medications we've been talking about this morning, potassium-sparing diuretics, been shown very uh, positively to help our patients with congestive heart failure, as in our example. Angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, ARBs go along with that as well, and certainly non-steroidals, we, we see that causing hyperkalemia as well. And what happens there is you reduce your aldosterone production. If you remember back to physiology, aldosterone goes to the kidney and causes you to uh, excrete um, uh, potassium. Now, here's where we get a little bit into the nephrology, uh, so I won't dwell on this, but you can have impaired responsiveness of the distal tubule, which is where the potassium... Uh, issue is because that's where aldosterone acts and certainly people who have primary uh, adrenal diseases or you know different types of renal tubular acidosis uh, which I won't even touch on they can all have decreased excretion as well. So how about our causes? Well we're talking about cardiovascular risk. We know that our chronic kidney disease patients don't die of chronic kidney disease. They die of cardiovascular uh, diseases. You've heard that time and again over the course of this weekend. I'm certainly not going to change that because that's what happens. Uh, we're afraid that they're going to die of kidney disease, but it's really the risk factors and the comorbidities uh, that increase their mortality. So oftentimes my patients have all of the above. Chronic kidney disease, congestive heart failure, type 2 diabetes, um, certainly medication effects for the medicines we put on them, dietary effects and other causes. So what do we do when we get that phone call in the middle of the night saying, oh, Mrs. Jones, potassium, we're using Mrs. Jones a lot today, Mrs. Jones, potassium is 6.4. Well, a lot of times we'll see that, and 5 seems to be our cutoff. We're okay with 5, but once you start getting above 5.5, 5, 
the panic button starts to go off. So you can see three times more patients are referred to the ER. And what's the ER going to do? They're going to repeat the potassium. And about 60% of the time, it's going to be back to normal. So they have an ER visit with really nothing going on. Number two, you're going to certainly repeat that. And I would, I would too. I would repeat it to make sure. But we're also looking down the road. And look at the difference in how we alter the medications that are being used. So we sometimes will increase the diuretic, and I'll talk about that uh, in a little while when we get into treatment. But a lot of times we'll discontinue or reduce the dose of the ACE or R because we think that that's uh, the factor, and it is. We'll often discontinue or decrease the dose of the potassium-sparing diuretic. Okay, so all those things you can see there shift over the higher the potassium gets. So when you look at the percent of patients who experience adverse outcomes by mortality, look at the light blue and the orange bars. Those are people that are suboptimally treated or discontinued of these medications. And we're talking primarily about the RAS inhibitors here. That's a huge percentage of patients with a missed opportunity to use those agents for the, uh, for the things that they're supposed to be. So and again, if you look at our CKD patients, our heart failure patients and our diabetic patients, you can see how suboptimal we're treating them because a lot of times they'll be discontinued from the medications. And you look at that for the total population and um, it's a little bit higher on that. Okay, how about mortality? Well, when we have mortality by using prior RAS doses, now look at the, uh, the dark blue bars. Patients do better when they're on RAS agents. Their mortality is lower for CKD for diabetes, for heart failure. So we are now altering medications that we know improve mortality based on an adverse outcome of the medication. That's a lost opportunity. That's a lost opportunity for these patients. So you can see when you use suboptimal or discontinued doses, mortality goes up to 20% or higher in some of these patients. Okay, again, I don't want you to look at this slide. This is a whole conglomeration of different uh, things regarding chronic kidney disease and age. Look at the light blue bar in the middle. Those are our submaximal doses that we use. So we have, we have a very large opportunity here to do better for our patients. That's the take-home message. Let's look at what we can do to try to maximize therapies known to improve morbidity and mortality. Okay, suboptimal treatment. This graph is very important because it shows you that we're only treating optimally about 25% of our patients. Now, unless you play for the Houston Astros, that's really not a good number. If you're a Houston Astro, you can do your job 25% of the time and make $10 million. If you're a doctor, you can't. So 25% or batting average of 250 is really not what we want here. So we have to do something better. So that's for the RAS inhibitors. Now, the mineralocorticoid antagonists, the, we know that they're going to get some hyperkalemia. That's what they do. They're potassium-sparing diuretics. So hyperkalemia is associated with a higher mortality. And when you had patients who were randomized to spironolactone, they had a sustained mortality benefit when their potassium levels were lower, i.e., they do better. So there was an, a trial called Emphasis, which was e-pluronone in uh, mild patients hospitalized in survival studies, there were definitely favorable effects from using the potassium-sparing diuretics on all-cause death, and that was independent of what the potassium was. So that kind of says it's not really the potassium that was increasing the mortality, but the positive effects of the plurinone that increased the mortality. 
So again, when we alter those agents, we're missing an opportunity. So here's our dilemma. Basically, what do you do? Do you prescribe the RAS and allow hyperkalemia? Are you worried about it? What happens when you have that one patient that really, you know, potassium uh, and the heart don't go well together at certain levels? Or do you avoid and discontinue the medications known to improve their status and miss an opportunity? So when we lead to suboptimal therapy, you can expect suboptimal results. There's no doubt about that. Okay, so what about, again, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? So mineralocorticoids, you can see here. Uh, when we look at uh, patients with chronic uh, kidney disease, again, they do have higher levels uh, of that. But when you use ACE inhibitors and attribute it to the development of hyperkalemia in 10 to 38% of hospitalized patients, about 10% of patients are going to develop hyperkalemia within the first year of therapy. So one out of every 10 of your patients started on an ACE or an ARB is going to have that happen. Now, there's always been the theory that ARBs are a little better with hyperkalemia. Not significant enough to make a, um, to make a statement to say that ARBs are better. So when you have uh, patients who have impaired renal function and those with diabetes, they're at higher risk. We've already talked about that. And one of the greatest trials in the last couple of years, of course, which led to uh, some, some changes in the way we treat heart failure was the Paradigm study. And the Paradigm study uh, used the ARNIs, or the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, which is currently Secubitril and uh, uh, Valsartan. They wanted to determine the impact on global mortality and morbidity and heart failure. So when you looked at the, uh, the side group of potassium issues, 15% of those patients did develop hyperkalemia. So again, it's a common problem that's in there. Don't worry too much about this slide. Just look at the difference between the black and the orange. That's what I want you to see. The black are our control groups. The orange are our, um, are our uh, groups that have hyperkalemia. And we look across the spectrum, particularly down in the bottom when you have that triple hitter, the heart failure, the chronic kidney disease, and the diabetes. Their mortality as the potassium gets higher is close to 100% sometimes. That's uh, pretty impressive stuff. So dealing with hyperkalemia is an absolute necessity in trying to de decrease mortality. Okay, again here, look at the bottom curve. Again, a U-shaped curve because hypokalemia can be bad as well. So you have the low U-shaped curve, then in the middle it uh, bends up, and then towards the higher ends of potassium, you start to see the increase in mortality. So the bottom line is the control group, then you go up to the diabetics, then you go up to the chronic kidney disease patients, and then you go up to the, the triple hitters, the hypertension, the diabetes. So mortality goes up significantly just based on disease states. When you have a combination of all three, that patient is at the highest mortality just related to hyperkalemia. So think about that for a minute. We have high mortality related to hyperkalemia, so we don't want them to have hyperkalemia. So we try to avoid the medicines or reduce the medicines that cause hyperkalemia, which in turn reduces the medicine we know that improves outcomes. That's a dilemma. That's the definition of a dilemma. And up until now, we really couldn't do much with that. I know we all don't want a patient walking around with a potassium of six because, you know, the next thing that may happen is you may get a call from the ER that the patient's having, you know, major cardiac events. So this is a true dilemma. And we really haven't been successful in trying to combat that dilemma, although we certainly err on the side of just discontinuing the causative medication. Lost opportunity. 
Okay, don't want you to worry about this too much, but as you go up in CKD, um, you're going to see more hyperkalemia. Goes without saying. Uh, the, the more that our patients are in, and I'll talk about this a little in the next talk, but your 80-year-old lady with an estimated GFR of 45, no protein and everything else, she doesn't have CKD, okay? She has an age-related elevation in her creatinine. So not an, it's not just the estimated GFR that tells you you have CKD. So as we advance along that continuum of CKD, and if you all remember, President Trump just gave us a, a, a directive a couple of months ago to really reduce the amount of money spent and the issues regarding dialysis, shifting more towards home, and also to increase transplantation. That's a debate we could have for a long, long time. Uh, JAMA actually uh, put out an article just recently saying that for-profit dialysis centers were much lower in their rate of getting transplants, the inference being that they want them on dialysis to make money. I can tell you as a practicing nephrologist working for both nonprofit and for-profit, that's not the case. It's the nephrology call. You know, if I have a patient who has transplant, that's what I want to do. But as we progress, we're going to excrete less potassium. So hyperkalemia is going to become more. So when you actually load a chronic kidney disease patient with potassium, you're supposed to increase your potassium. It's kind of the, the, the funnel. It, once you load up, you're going to spill out that potassium. CKD patients can't do that. They're blunted. Okay, so they don't get rid of that potassium to a potassium load. This is an interesting topic. This is an article that just came out this year. Um, I don't know if you could see it down there, but 2019. We actually know very little. This goes back to my banana. We actually know very little about the uh, amount of potassium additives in individual foods. We know what they are by milligrams, and we know all of that. But unlike low phosphorus, which is the bane of a chronic kidney disease um, patient's existence, and we had a good talk about that last year, the cardiovascular risks of phosphorus imbalance, which is very interesting, um, we don't really know what the bioavailability of potassium is in these foods. And some estimate that it's only about 50 or 60 percent. So stopping those bananas may not be all that important, or it's not going to give you that big bang for your buck. So we do know that if you include more fruits and vegetables in a CKD patient's diet, that may actually improve their blood pressure, improve their metabolic acidosis, and decrease the risk for kidney injury and progression of chronic kidney disease. So again, a little bit of a dilemma there. Um, so that's why you know, telling the patient to stop the banana might not be the best idea. So let, let's get into the heart of the matter in the last uh, 20 minutes here. Let's talk about how we're going to fix this problem, how we're going to take those opportunities and gather them back for our patients. So what are our therapeutic goals when we're treating hyperkalemia? So classically, it's been divided into three goals. Far left side, that's the number one. That's your unstable patient who you just need to get the potassium away from their heart to reduce their risk of you know, uh, cardiovascular or cardio, cardiac arrest. And there we use membrane stabilization, calcium salts, different things like that. Number two is we want to start to redistribute that potassium. There's only three things that are going to happen. You're either going to move the potassium back into the cells where it belongs, or you're going to excrete it. So the medicines that we use in the acute setting, the insulin, the bicarbonate, the beta blockers, inhaled albuterol, that's just moving your potassium around. Okay, so it's going to go, you're going to force it back into the cells. After a while, it's going to leach back out because it's not be, you're not excreting it. And the third is eliminating that potassium. 
So how do we do that? Bicarbonate can help do that if you give bicarbonate. And there's some good studies that sodium bicarbonate in chronic kidney disease patients helps us, especially if they have a metabolic acidosis. Loop diuretics can certainly do that because you're going to have a caloresis, and I'll show you that, I think, in the next slide. My old favorite, sodium polystyrene, the old K-exalate, we could certainly use that. And then we, of course, have newer agents. So let's go through these and determine how we're going to get that opportunity back for our patients. So diuretics are very good. And if you administer a loop diuretic, and this is my favorite question to ask the medical students on rounds. The first drug we probably all gave was Lasix. Anybody know why they call it Lasix? It lasts six hours, that's correct. So, and we, yet, we use it most of the time once a day in patients because we don't want them in the bathroom 24 hours a day. But they call Lasix that because it lasts six hours. So think about that, your potent uh, naturesis and caloresis is gonna be in the first few hours. So when you do that, you're gonna have, uh, when you give that diuretic, you're gonna have both sodium and potassium loss through that independent mechanism. So what it is is basically flow. You're increasing the flow through the tubule which drags potassium out and that's why you get lower potassium. So those are the things that we use. So it's certainly a good agent and if patients require a, a diuretic, I think a loop diuretic works very well. Uh, thiazide uh, diuretics, not as good, but uh, our patients many times with heart failure they're on a loop diuretic anyway. So I do think it's a good medication. Will it effectively lower your potassium? Very unpredictable, very unpredictable. You know that as well as I do. Patients who are on big doses of diuretics, you know, 80 of Lasix twice a day, oftentimes they don't get hypokalemic because they don't have that effective flow rate. But you have to have flow rate to drag the potassium out. So what have we been left with? These have been the approved binding agents through the years. So if we go all the way back to 1958, which actually predates me, um, there was no uh, ability for the FDA to approve drugs. So sodium polystyrene sulfate, or SPS, was approved in 1958. Basically no evidence, they just decided to approve it. And it's a nonspecific ion exchange resin. What it does is it takes a sodium, puts it in, and exchanges it for a potassium in the GI tract. Okay, it works in the colon. It's variable. It can occur uh, hours to days after you give a dose. And the adverse effects are pretty significant. Uh, mild to moderate GI effects, poor, it's poorly tolerated. Um, it's, it causes a lot of electrolyte abnormalities and colonic necrosis, which is a bad thing, which I'll talk about in a minute. We did have the opportunity about five years ago, four years ago, to have pteromir approved. That's a nonspecific organic uh, exchange, but it uses calcium instead of sodium. So you exchange a calcium for a potassium. Works in the colon. Usually onset is within seven hours. So these agents are not approved for acute treatment of hyperkalemia yet. In the future, I think we may see that as, a, um, as a, a, an agent that we'll be able to use. There's mild to moderate GI effects, but I can't emphasize enough if you have a patient on pteromere, hypomagnesemia is a big problem. So you really, really have to pay attention to that. 2018, about a year ago, uh, we had uh, SZC or sodium zircodium cyclosilicate, which was also approved. And that's also an anion exchange. It's a selective inorganic non-polymer and exchanges sodium and hydrogen for the potassium. So it works all through the GI tract, not just in the colon. Medium time to, median time to effect is about 2.2 hours. So it makes that a little bit more tenable for potential for acute use. But again, these are not recommended for acute use. 
uh, there's mild to moderate GI effects. You don't see the hypomagnesemia as much uh, with that. Um, but again, all these agents, they're there to lower uh, potassium, so you may get hypokalemia. So let's go one at a time. Spend a little time on my favorite SPS. We've all probably given uh, this through the years. And it was approved in 1958 before designed and controlled clinical trials were required. Um, so right now, if we were to try to get this on the market, it wouldn't go. This would never be approved, I think, in this day and age. Um, with the current re reviews, there was really no evidence to show that this really worked, but it seemed to lower potassium. So that was good. So there's no convincing evidence that it actually does anything. There's no convincing evidence that it increases fecal potassium loss, which is what you want to do with these agents. And it has sorbitol in it, which has been known or indicated as the primary dysfunctional problem with this. Uh, sorbitol actually probably increases the effectiveness. So if you take the sorbitol out, it doesn't work as well. So, uh, and that's because sorbitol is osmotically active. It's going to pull more potassium out. So intestinal necrosis is a real thing, and I'm going to show you a study from a couple of years ago and then something that just came out this year. But when they looked at 501 patients who received SPS for the treatment of hyperkalemia during their hospital stay, they actually had a decent uh, decline in potassium, about one milliequivalent per liter on average, and uh, that was just by using that. There was no other medical treatment given. But they did see 31 cases of hypokalemia where the potassium went down lower than 3.5, and two cases of uh, bowel necrosis, which was attributed to the SPS, most likely the sorbitol. So 501 patients, two patients with intestinal necrosis, you might say not too bad. But this is what intestinal necrosis looks like. Um, you don't want to see it. It it's, can be fatal. So in 2019, uh, in JAMA Internal Medicine, this study came out where they cohorted 20, uh, about 20,000 patients who had received SPS and 20,000 who didn't. And when they saw that, there was a much higher of GI adverse uh, events in the, pre in the ensuing 30 days after that. So what they saw was an incidence rate of almost 23 cases per 1,000 patient years compared to 11, about twice as many when they were given SPS. And intestinal ischemia, thrombosis, and necrosis was the most common type of GI injury. So we don't like to use this agent. So let's talk about the, the newer agents. So pteromir, is, again, uses calcium as opposed to sodium as its counter ion. So it makes it a better choice for congestive heart failure because if you're going to excrete the potassium and incre increase the sodium, that may potentiate fluid overload issues. There has been three significant trials, and I'll zoom through these a little bit, that led to the approval. First was the PEARL-HF trial, which was the effect of pteromir in heart failure patients. And this looked at a small number of patients but what happened was they, um, they either had a history of hyperkalemia causing a discontinuation of the RAS inhibitors, but these patients were initiated on spironolactone. Remember, these are heart failure patients, and we all know the spironolactone data. So they were either initiated to this with pteromir or placebo for four weeks, and if you look at the graph on the side, you can see clearly that the potassium levels over that 28-day period, which are indicated in the maroon bar, is much lower. So you were able to effectively treat them with the aplerinone, uh, I'm sorry, the spironolactone, and control their potassium. So again, hypomagnesemia, though, occurred in about 24% of these patients. That could also be an adverse effect. So we were able to use the agents effectively by keeping the binding resin on board. 
The amethyst study uh, looked at patients with hypertension and diabetic nephropathy, and these patients were all on RAS therapy. And what this basically said was, this was a little bit bigger study, 306 patients uh, had prior RAS therapy, and they had decreased serum potassium levels four weeks, maintained up to about 52 weeks. So again, these patients were maintained on their RAS therapy. They didn't have to stop it based on the hyperkalemia. Less of a missed opportunity. And then this was the one that kind of, that kind of uh, sealed the deal. This was the OPAL-HK study. And this looked at uh, two phases where they initiated treatment in these patients. And then they had a withdrawal uh, phase. I'm going to go to the second slide here. And what they found is that there was a pretty good reduction in these patients. So overall, in the initiation phase, they reduced potassium by about one milliequivalent per, uh, per liter. But if you look in phase two, and you look at the pteromere group, none of them went back up, whereas the placebo group, the potassium rose back up again to uh, by 0.72 or so. So again, it shows you that it's a sustained uh, mechanism of action. So it can be used more long-term in controlling the patient's hyperkalemia. Adverse effects, we touched on this. Constipation, actually a lot of people will complain about diarrhea with SPS. It's more constipation uh, with pteromere. But look at that, uh, look at that hypomagnesemia. You really gotta pay attention to that. I can't stress that enough. I've seen patients get hypokalemic on this, um, and I usually just a dose, uh, dose adjust them to try to keep them on it. But this works pretty well. I have a lot of patients, particularly diabetic nephropathy patients, who I've been able to maximize their RAS agents uh, by controlling their potassium. Now, of course, the question comes up, why are you adding another drug to counteract the problem of a different drug. Well, you gotta, you gotta look at the risk benefit. We know the benefit of ACE inhibitors and ARBs are there, it's clear, we know that. And in heart failure, we know more about the mineralocorticoid antagonists and the ACEs and ARBs. So I think that risk benefit gives you that opportunity to treat those patients maximally. Not a big fan of adding a drug to treat a drug, but I think in this case, it's different because we are actually getting an opportunity back. So the third one that's been uh, approved in 2008 is uh, SCC, or sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, and that uh, uses I'm sorry, uh, sodium and hydrogen, and it basically traps the potassium in your colon, and it does it throughout the entire GI tract. Um, so it, uh, initial dosing is 10 grams three times a day for up to 48 hours. And then you have a maintenance dose of 5 to 15 grams administered once daily. And that's for, so you basically wean them on for two days. You see if they have an effect, and if they do, you maintain them on this. Also very well tolerated agent. This was the ZSO3 trial. And again, can't really see the scattergram over there, but what I'm basically going to tell you is that uh, you were able to effectively get normokalemia in these patients while maintaining their agents that you're using for heart failure, diabetic nephropathy. The harmonized trial, though, which was the hyperkalemia randomized intervention with SCC maintenance, you can see this graph a little bit better. Um, and certainly what it shows is different doses of the uh, SCC uh, based on the colored lines. And there's a marked decrease in the uh, hyperkalemia effects. And that goes throughout the course of all those. So when they actually looked at a, a subgroup of these patients, 94 patients uh, with heart failure that were enrolled in this trial, they found that all three of the doses, which is uh, five to 15 uh, grams per day, 
they resulted in a rapid and sustained normal kalemia, including those patients who are on RAS agents. So again, trade-off, one for the other. Maximize that opportunity a little bit. Okay, as far as adverse effects, you don't see the hypomagnesemia as much here. Um, you also don't see the constipation as much here. So this one seems to be a little bit better tolerated on the GI effects. Um, the, in clinical practice, it's the chronic management of uh, hyperkalemia and has a potential role in the management of acute hyperkalemia, although not quite approved for that yet and no studies to look at that. So those are the two things. With the last couple of minutes I want to talk here, and I know you're going to have a great lecture this afternoon on resistant hypertension, but hyperkalemia and resistant hypertension is also a real thing. So what we do is we define resistant hypertension as uh, the blood pressure of a hypertensive patient remaining above goal, and we can argue about the goals in a moment, uh, concurrent use of three antihypertensive agents of different classes as well as a diuretic. That's the definition. So when you have treated adults with hypertension, the prevalent amount of resistant hypertension occurs in about 12 to 15 percent of the population and about 15 to 18 percent of clinic-based reports. So there's also suggestion that resistant hypertension has in, in increased adverse outcomes and is becoming a very important public health problem. Um, I'm going to skip this. This is a little bit of an algorithm. And what we look here is this was the Pathway 2 trial where we found that spironolactone is actually a pretty good drug for resistant hypertension. Um, a lot of us go to clonidine. We know the adverse effects of clonidine. Been using a lot more hydralazine lately, but spironolactone is a good drug. And in resistant hypertension, it may be the most effective type of treatment. So um, we may want to redefine resistant hypertension to add spironolactone to that equation. That's up for debate. I'll, I'll defer to my colleague later to talk a little bit more about that. Um, I'm going to kind of skip this one because I want to get to the AMBER trial. And uh, this was a trial that was done looking at resistant hypertension and chronic kidney disease. So what they found here is that pteromere enabled more patients to continue their treatment with spironolactone with less hyperkalemia. So persistent enablement of the use of spironolactone in this population uh, has led to clinical relevance for the treatment of hypertension. So I think, I think that's a good thing because, again, if we have a drug that's effective for our hypertensive patients but we can't use it because of the adverse effects, we may have a, 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 another, you know, a bullet in our chamber, so to speak. Okay, and you could see here that the hyperkalemia led to discontinuation of medications, but if you kept them um, less hyperkalemic by the use of pteromere, they were able to remain on their agents like spironolactone, so more effective treatment for the uh, resistant hypertension. So remember our case? We started with a case about 30 minutes ago. Let's go back to that case. So again, transitions of care, and this, this occurs across the spectrum. I don't care if you're talking about diabetes. Um, at, at my hospital at Center State, we put into place a transitional care clinic where patients with specific diagnoses, particularly heart failure, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, they go to a uh, transitional care clinic for the first 30 days where they get their med reconciliation done by a PharmD, they get education, they get health coaching, they get enrolled in programs uh, to help them. And what has happened? We reduced our readmission rate for those diseases from 21% to 14% in one year. So transitions of care is very important. Um, the patient needs to be empowered 
have that patient be the captain of their disease. And you'll hear a little bit more about that when I morph into my next talk. So when we go back to our case, so we did start pteromir on this patient, uh, 8.4 grams daily. His potassium remained less than 5. We actually got to get him back on an ACE inhibitor. Remember, he was on Irbisartan, but we put him on lisinopril at this point. And we put him on a fairly strict low potassium diet, which most patients don't adhere to. And when we checked his potassium at 2, 6, and 12 weeks, it remained under 4.9. He had minimal GI effects from the uh, agent. His proteinuria went back down. Remember, it was about 1,200, went up to 4,500 or so, went back down to 2,100. Do you think that's important? That is important. Lowering their protein is going to slow their progression of kidney disease. And his blood pressures are now a little bit more reasonable. Not quite where I want them yet, but it's not in the 190s. It's 142 over 84. So we've gathered back an opportunity for our patient by combating the adverse effect of, of the medications. So do we have work to do on this guy? Absolutely. Do we have education to do on this guy? Absolutely. And that's where we need to focus on that. So I have two minutes left in this talk before we change coats and put on the other one. But what's our take home? Evidence-based medicine dictates dictates that we utilize RAS agents and to some degree mineralocorticoid antagonists. Little, you know, the data there can be up and down uh, for cardiovascular risk reduction. I don't think there's anybody in this room that would state that the RAS agents don't do that. And this is true across the entire spectrum of the patients we see. Chronic kidney disease, hypertension, resistant hypertension, CHF, type 2 diabetes. Hyperkalemia is often the deciding factor in reducing or limiting that agent. There should be an equal sign there, missed opportunity. Okay, missed opportunity translates into worse outcomes, translates into higher costs, translates into everything bad for our patient. So we risk outcomes when we sacrifice therapy. So the novel binding agents that we spoke about today uh, provides us a bridge that can help maximize the benefits that we have from these agents and help curtail some of the electrolyte issues. Transitions of care, I can't stress that enough. I, I could talk about that for hours. I, I love that. Uh, in all cardiovascular disease states, must be smooth, coordinated, and integrated. If you don't, and I would venture to say in New Jersey, we see a lot of disintegrated care. Um, we're, we're, Jeff, you probably agree on this. We're, we're very specialty-oriented in New Jersey. If you have an earache, you go to the ENT. Um, that's very disjointed care. We're also, we all know we're on disparate EMRs, so we don't get the data sometimes that we are. New Jersey's in a big epic move uh, as some of the, um, the larger systems are dictating going to epic, but ultimately, if you don't coordinate your care with, for this patient with your other consultants, another missed opportunity. Where's that patient gonna end up? They're gonna end up back in the hospital or they're gonna be inadequately treated. So really, transitions of care is, is very important. 